Philippi was an outpost in the Roman Empire in the East. Patriotism and nationalism were its hallmarks. Paul writes to the church there to remind them of their call to something higher, a power greater than any nation or military. Jesus is the one true Lord, the only one worthy of anyone's devotion. But Jesus is not one to lord his power over us. Jesus is the God who gave up everything to serve out of love. And we as followers are called to follow his example. This is a series about following the ways of Jesus. And in the midst of anything that comes against us, know that joy and peace because Jesus, the king of the universe, has come so close as to live within us. Thank you guys, I've never experienced that before. Uh, you're very kind. Welcome everyone, uh, it's nice to have you with us. Um, as a slight break uh, with routine, I'm going to speak now uh, and then we all um, take a collection song in a little bit, uh, which is because uh, twice a year we as a church uh, spend two Sundays considering uh, how Christians, we as Christians should treat money, specifically the importance of giving money away. And this coincides with our final two weeks on uh, the book of Philippians, uh, this week and next week. Now, the problem is, next week, the final installment of Philippians is all about giving money and Paul being thankful for it. This week, it isn't. It's about anxiety. So I'm going to talk about anxiety instead. Money and anxiety, anxiety the two favorite subjects. This is a talk about anxiety. But if I were to ask us all, uh, what do we worry most about? I have a feeling that for most of us, near the top of the list, it would be money, would it not? I know it certainly would be for mine. Uh, over the years, I've got to know a huge number of people, and I have to say, it does not really matter, it seems, whether you've got lots of money or little money, that does not make you immune to worry. I know people who have fantastically large amounts of money who worry a lot about money, and people who don't have any money who don't worry about it at all, and vice versa. And anyway, I'm sure we can all agree that we're much more likely to be free with money, free from its powers, which is actually at the heart of Jesus' teaching, if we are not gripped by anxiety with money. So, uh, next week will definitely be about money. Don't miss that one. Uh, and this week is kind of about anxiety. It's really entitled, um, How to Overcome Anxiety but particularly how to overcome anxiety with relation to money. So that's it. It's exciting, isn't it? Uh, and um, I think Alton, Alton, are you uh, reading? Alton is going to read from uh, Philippians chapter four, uh, starting at verse four. Good morning, church. Today I'll be coming from Philippians uh, chapter four, verses four through nine. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, 
and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Alton. So can we start with a little question? Are you a worrier? Do you worry about your job? Your children? What if something happens to them? Do you worry about your parents? What if something happens to them? Do you worry about your brother or your sister? Do you worry about your marriage? Do you worry about your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Do you worry about remaining single? Do you worry about the state of the world? The wars and the violence and the recessions and the pandemics? Are you a worrier? Do you worry about politics and elections and presidents? Do you worry about your health, about cancer? Do you worry about death? Do you worry about your worry? Do you spend quite a long time thinking I should be less anxious? Stop worrying. Are you a worrier? Do you worry about guns? Do you worry about suicide rates? Do you worry about the economy? Do you worry about climate change? Do you worry about the church? Do you worry about this church? Do you worry deeply about me and Hannah? And do you worry about money? About never having enough? About being broke? About losing it all? Are you a worrier? Paul says, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Here are the latest figures about anxiety disorders in the USA as of February this year. Over 65s, 20% display symptoms of having anxiety disorders. For 50 to 64-year-olds, 30%. 25 to 49-year-olds, I think probably the vast majority of people in this room, 38%, two in five, almost. And for those lucky enough to be a little bit younger, 18 to 25, do you know how many people display symptoms of having an anxiety disorder in the 18 to 25 category. One in every two, 50% of people. Overall, a third, one in three, of all adults in the United States, supposedly the greatest, most affluent, opportunity-rich country in the whole world, one in three of us, is not just a worrier, we worry so much that medically it can be said that we have an anxiety disorder. One in three. Are you one? Do you worry? Do you know that one in every six people has taken anti-anxiety medication in the past 12 months? Now, don't get me wrong, this is not to have a go at anyone nor is it to diminish the gravity of the things that are causing us anxiety and nor is it to diminish uh, the very important role of drugs and counseling and other forms of mental health treatment which can help people deal with anxiety. Rather, it is simply to put in stark contrast the seriousness of the problem and the context in which Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Do you know, white people, we are much more likely to worry. Isn't that great? Well done, us. I don't actually know what that means. It's just I found it interesting. Twice as much. 
twice as much. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything at all. Now, the temptation is for us to say, well, Paul, he doesn't know what it's like to be a 21st century young adult, all the pressures. And of course, he did not know what it is like to live in this world now. And yet, I don't think we should make the mistake of thinking Paul had no pressures on him. Uh, this is what he writes in a typically Pauline way in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 23, are you ready for this? This is Paul. I have worked much harder, been put in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, which sounds like a song, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've gone without food. I have been cold and I've been naked. I think Paul has every reason to be anxious, right? Should we just agree that he probably could, if he wanted to, have quite a lot to worry about? And on top of this, Paul says, verse 28, besides everything else, all of these things, I have faced the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. It strikes me that um, some people have, above all the other things that they can worry about, decided to worry about the state of the church. Look at the corruption and the moral failings. Look at the terrible leaders. Look at the bowing to culture and all the compromise on the teaching, all of which, of course, are very serious. But Paul says, you may have reason to be anxious about church, but I have more. There is a sense in which the whole Gentile operation, the whole church to the Gentiles rests on Paul's shoulders. Easy for me to say. Paul's shoulders. And yet he says, do not be anxious about anything. Now, it's very important that we um, define some terms here. By anxiety, what I think Paul means here is not uh, what we would know as sort of extreme phobias or panic disorders. And I need to say this uh, importantly. If you find yourself um, ever in a situation where you're hyperventilating or you feel faint or you feel like your body has shut down, you feel incapacitated, uh, these symptoms could well be the result of wiring in your brain not actually working as it should. Can I say to you, Pastor, please consult medical and or therapeutic help. Talk to your doctor. We have a, a number of counselors who we can put you in touch with. And if that is you, if it's actually um, an imbalance in the brain, for me to say, oh, just apply Paul's teaching here and then everything will be fine would be seriously and highly irresponsible. So can you hear that? But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Rather, what I think Paul is talking to is the 99% of us who don't regularly suffer from panic attacks but do spend a huge amount of our time in the fruitless mental activity of worry. Secondly, he is not talking about godly concern. Whilst the Bible universally condemns worry, it always commends concern. In the passage that I just quoted, Paul says he has a positive godly concern for the church. 
Concern, you see, always leads to action. Paul's godly concern leads him to spending his days planting churches, preaching, and teaching. Worry, on the other hand, only ever leads to inaction. Where concern is constructive, worry is destructive. So I have a small chip, or at least I did, I used to have a small chip on my windshield. Do you know what I did about the small chip on my windshield? Nothing. Not one thing. I just looked at it and went, I'll be fine. Do you know why I did nothing about it? Because I didn't want to spend money or time on it. Why? Because I worry about my money and my time. Do you know what's happened to that chip? It has become a crack. Do you know, every time I get into the car, I worry a lot more about that crack than I did the chip. And this is how my thought process goes. I wish I had taken the car into the shop when it was just a chip. I am such an idiot. <laughs> when will I ever learn it's now a crack? And probably, if I don't do anything about that crack, that crack will, at some point, shatter the whole windscreen, and that is very dangerous. So I must take the car into the shop. But when am I going to find the time? And actually, there's a chance that if I do take it into the shop, they'll say that it, the car is so crappy that it's not really worth fixing the windshield at all. You should just buy another car. But I haven't really got the finances or the time to buy another car right now. And if we do, we'll have to probably dip into the kids' college fund. And if we dip into the kids' college fund, do you know what's going to happen? They're not going to be able to go to college. And then they will resent us. And then they will never, ever, ever get a job. And then they will probably throw themselves into a life of drugs and crime. And they will always resent me. And then Hannah will go, it's all your fault because you didn't fix the stupid chip when you had a chance. And then she will leave me. And that is a lot to worry about. Should have just fixed the chip. And I worry, and I worry, and I worry. Because that's what worry does. It spirals to one thing, to another, to another, to another. It's emotionally exhausting. And it can lead to sleeplessness. If you, didn't, if you weren't able to answer the question, are you a worrier? Try some of these symptoms for size. Sleeplessness. Overeating. Undereating. Irritability. Headaches migraines, all very common side effects of anxiety. Because worry is really bad for us. It's just why Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. But he doesn't just tell us, he shows us how. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord, I will say it again, rejoice. Now, what he doesn't say here is rejoice. He says, rejoice in the Lord, and this is extremely important. He is not just saying rejoice, just have some happy thoughts. Rejoice that the sun is in the sky. Rejoice that you're not dead. Rejoice that, you know, other people have it a lot worse than you, and so you can be thankful for that. 
And if you do those things, then you will never, ever worry again. He is specifically and deliberately saying, rejoice in the Lord. Paul is not, therefore, offering advice here that anyone can take. He is taking and talking in deliberately narrow terms. He is saying that the only way out of destructive patterns of anxiety is found in Jesus. It's the only way. He is talking to Christians. He's saying, as people with a pre-existing relationship with the living God through Jesus, his son, you actually do have the one true way out of anxiety. So if you want to lead an anxiety-free life, deepen that relationship with Jesus and see your anxiety dissipate. Which is not, of course, to say that those who aren't Christians don't lead happy, anxious, free lives. Many of them do. Nor is it to say that many Christians aren't racked by worry. Many of them are. Rather, he's saying, for anyone who is suffering from anxiety, the only way to get out of it is actually in the Lord. Typically, though, we as Christians... We don't do that. We first choose any other human option possible available to us before we take it to the Lord. We revert to what Paul would call our fleshly nature, our fallen nature. We take it upon ourselves and we choose any of the various options open to us. We try to tough it out. Yeah, I've lost my job, but I will not let anxiety get me. Or we choose despair. I have lost my job. God did it to me. Woe is me. The whole world is falling apart. Or we choose avoidance. It's not that bad. I've lost my job. If I don't think about this ever again, perhaps I won't have lost my job. Paul is saying none of those work. Don't choose human ways of dealing with anxiety. Choose the Lord. So, the question is, dear worrier, O follower of Jesus who worries, would you like to stop being anxious? Jesus has placed himself in your hand. He is the medicine. You have it in your hand. Would you like to now begin the process of taking the medicine? Would you? The way out, says Paul, is only ever and ultimately through deepening our relationship with Jesus. And to get to that, we need to do various things. Firstly, and this is slightly 12-steppy, but 12-steppy is very good. We've got to start with admitting who we are. My name is Ed Flint, and I am a worrier. Would you like to do that in your own heart and mind now? You don't have to do it out loud. That would be embarrassing. Say your name. Say that you're a worrier. Step two, we need to admit our weakness over our worry. We do not have the power in and of ourselves to get out of worry. So my name is Ed Flint. I am a worrier. And my powers of denial, there's nothing to worry about. My powers of avoidance, 
I'm going to not think about that thing ever again, my powers of scheming. I'm going to work out a very clever way through this and every other problem that ever comes my way, my willpower. I'm going to banish all worry from my thoughts as soon as I feel it. My intellect, if I could just work out why on earth this is happening to me, then I would be able to understand it and I would stop worrying. My wishful thinking, things will get better. I'm sure they will, I'm sure they will, I'm sure they will. The more I say it, I'm sure they will. My charm, if only people knew who I was, they would stop making my life horrible because I'm a nice guy and this shouldn't be happening to me. All of those things cannot overcome my worry. Would you like to admit it to yourself? Step three. I am a worrier. I can't overcome my worry by myself. But what I am going to do is believe that in Jesus I will. So I am going to develop a deeper relationship with the God who holds the whole universe in his hands but has come so close to me to tell me that I am his son, his daughter, the one he loves and has placed his spirit within me. I'm going to let him into the deepest recesses of who I am. I'm going to let him into the internal places where actually the worry originates. The hurt and the pain and the trauma. And trusting that he is good, that he is who he says he is, I will do my best to try to let him deal with my worry. That's what that little phrase, in the Lord, means. And as we do that, we will let our, our gentleness be evidence to all. Gentleness to all is the mark of someone who is worry-free. Conversely, if we find ourselves not actually being any less irritable with people, if we find ourselves still blaming everyone else for all the terrible things that ever happened to us, or if we find ourselves avoiding people as much as possible because we don't actually want to know what they think, we probably still have quite a lot left to do of letting the God by his spirit into the deep recesses of our worry to heal us. But, says Paul, take heart. The Lord is near. This means two things. The Lord is near temporally. The Lord's return is soon. Soon all things will be made well. Do you know, O oh believer, that you never ever need to worry about death? Do you know that? I know you know that. I know you believe that. But do you know that that's what Jesus has done? Does it affect your whole being? You never, ever need to worry about dying. Because Jesus has died, and he's come back, and he said, it's all done. The Lord is near. Temporally, he's near, but also spiritually, he is near. The Lord is near, so, so near, actually, that he infiltrates your whole being. And this, for our purposes is the important stuff. I wonder, do you know the fullness of being filled with God's Holy Spirit? Everything we've been talking about with regards deepening our relationship with the Lord comes back to a work of his Spirit. And as Christians, of course, we all have the Spirit. 
He's like a little pilot light in the furnace of our souls, flickering away there. But often what we need is him to turn up the temperature, is him to bring everything to life, is him to fan the flames in our being so that all those worries would be dispelled. We do this by letting him into every single part of who we are. Every single part of who we are. Every single part of who we are. Step four. By prayer and petition, 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 and with thanksgiving, present your request to God. As I've said before, the Bible's wonderfully realistic. It does not say, if you let the Holy Spirit in, if you cultivate a deeper relationship with God, then nothing bad will ever happen to you. It does not say that. Nor is it saying, don't worry, because it will never happen. Paul is not reasoning out the probability. He's not saying, don't worry about something like someone, you know, shooting you or you getting cancer. The odds are it probably won't happen. That's no solace to the worrier, is it? Yes, statistically, the plane is not going to fall out of the sky. But now and again, planes do fall out of the sky. And if you happen to be on that plane and it falls out of the sky, you will most likely die. Paul is not saying, don't worry, it probably won't happen. Paul is saying, don't worry about what may actually happen. Instead, pray about it. Pray about everything. Big things like cancer and heartbreak and redundancy, small things like windshields. And it's here, I think, that we will get the biggest pushback in our inner souls. You might already be feeling it in your body. Because no doubt all of us at times, and some of us right now, are thinking, but I have prayed. I have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. I have prayed a huge amount. I've prayed more than you could ever imagine. And it hasn't worked. I am still very worried. Maybe even worse. I've prayed about it, and in fact, the more I pray about it, the more anxious I become. Sadly, um, what I've found is that many Christians have sort of found themselves in this Christianity thing, and they believe it to be true, so they can't really get away from it. But what they don't see is it working for them. Or worse, it works for everyone else, but not for me. Now, I do have a huge amount of sympathy for this. But just in terms of logic, if we believe that Christianity is true, then surely if it is properly understood and properly applied, it will work. That's what I believe because I've seen it, but also as a matter of logic. And so if it's not working, can I suggest very graciously, graciously, Perhaps either it hasn't been properly understood or it hasn't been properly applied. So can we consider how we might be misapplying or misunderstanding our faith? Uh, I was reading a, um, someone's writing on this subject and they quoted a German pastor who gloried in the name Helmut Thielicker. 
so this German pastor called Helmut Thielicker uh, was a pastor in the Second World War. And at the end of the war, the Allies were dropping bomb after bomb after bomb on Germany. And he said he'd noticed that his congregants would every night uh, pray and pray and pray and pray. But the more they prayed, the more anxious he saw that they got. And so he asked them, what are you praying for? And they all said, we're praying this, please stop the bombs, please stop the bombs, please stop the bombs, and then every night more bombs. And Helmut Thielicker, the pastor, said, well, this is the problem. You're praying to the bombs, you're not praying to the God. And I think often we can do the same thing. We pray to the cancer, we pray to the job, we pray to the money. Instead, we are called to pray to a person. We're called to pray to the God of love and power. We're called to pray to the God with whom we have a relationship, who is completely competent and loves us dearly. And we will know if we're praying to that person rather than praying to the bombs if we are able to add thanksgiving into our prayer. Contrary to how this is uh, sometimes taught, Paul is not here saying that we should be thankful beforehand for what God was, will do in answer to our prayer. It's not some sort of magic formula that if we say things in the right order, then, wow, it will happen. I thank you in advance for what you're going to do. Hey, I got it. Rather, thanksgiving is for thanksgiving's sake. There is and there never is any Sorry, there is not and there never is any quid pro quo. But what happens when we engage in thanksgiving on these for its own terms sake, term, sorry, for its own sake terms, I'm really finding it difficult to speak today. Let me try that again. What happens when we engage in thanksgiving on these for its own sake terms is that we shine a big bright light beneath the surface of what's going on in our heart at any one moment. If you're anything like me, when I feel particularly anxious, the last thing I want to do is thank God for things. I want him to fix things, thank you very much. I don't actually even want him to make me less anxious, I want him to fix the thing that is making me anxious, and then I won't be anxious. Here, I think, is the exposure. I believe almost always, and struggling to be thankful will be a symptom of this, that the source of our worry is actually because we are holding some sort of grudge against God. It's the thought that God's actually against you, or that he's just too busy and doesn't really care about you, or your finances, or your job, or your relational situation or someone's health. And so the idea of being thankful in those circumstances actually shows us what's really going on. If you're in doubt, the next time you're anxious, try spending 10 minutes thanking God and see how you go. Is it because actually God is part of the problem rather than part of the solution? 
Now, this does not, of course, mean that we are supposed to thank God for all the terrible things that are going on in our lives. Thank you that I will soon be homeless. You're such a good God. Rather, start thanking him for all the things that are true, irrespective of your circumstances. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are good, that you are the definition of good, that you cannot but be good. Thank you that you are not just loving of me, but you are love. From you is love. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that through his death and resurrection, he has bought me at a price, and I can look full into the face of God my Father, and I can know that I am his son or his daughter, that I am his. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that you listen to prayers. Thank you that you, throughout the Gospels, did extraordinary things to show us what God is like. Thank you. Thank you that you are the God of the universe, that all power is yours. Thank you that one day everything will be made well, that all tears will be wiped, all healing will flow, that we will be one with you and one with one another. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you that we're not alone. Thank you that we don't need to worry. Thank you for all of these things. And then thank him for things that are personal to you that you are actually able to thank him for. Thank you for my health, if your health is in good standing. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my community. Thank you for all of these things that you've given me. And do you know what happens as we do the thankfulness? That as we're in this swell, our spirit connects with his spirit And we see him for who he actually is. It's like all the walls are torn down. It's like all the grudges that might be there start to dissipate. And we go, you're with me and you're good and I love you. And I receive your love and I see you. And then verse 7, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What does God promise us? It is never the end to whatever it is that is causing us to worry, I'm sorry to say. It's not no cancer. It's not a perfect job. It's not loads and loads and loads of money. It is not perfect children or perfect health or a perfect place to live. Paul says precisely nothing, no thing, about whether we get the objects of our requests or not. What Paul says instead is that as you get in touch with the God of love by the power of his spirit, all your worries will cease. He will so flood you with his peace, the power of that peace, the peace that is beyond all possible human comprehension, that nothing could change in your circumstances and you will still be without any worry at all. In fact, your circumstances could get worse and worse and worse, and you will still be completely without anxiety. This is what the promise is. What differentiates a Christian, says Paul, is not that when everyone else doesn't have a job, you pray and you get a job. What differentiates a Christian, says Paul, is not that when you need money and everyone else needs money, but you pray, you get money. What differentiates a Christian, says Paul, is that whatever comes our way, And even if things get worse and worse, we will not be marked by anxiety. The worst thing in the world could happen to us. But what marks the Christian out 
is that they will not be terrorized by it. That's what's on offer. In the prayer meeting earlier, um, Tessa, I think she's doing uh, kids. Tessa was, uh, said that she felt like God showed her something, which is someone standing at the um, doors of this glorious palace. And the doors were flung open, and inside the palace was just loads of treasure. And Jesus was beckoning them in. The kingdom of God is one of treasure, and one of those treasures is a life free from anxiety. Would you like to walk into it? It's going to require probably some heart surgery. It's going to require letting God's spirit into some of the deepest recesses of who you are so that he can heal it, because he does not want you to worry anymore. Do you know what Christians should be saying to the world is, here is a worry-free existence. That thing that is crippling you, would you like to live free from it? The problem is, we don't actually believe it. So we don't do it. But that's what's on offer. Uh, it's supposed to be about money. Uh, let's talk about money briefly as we end. Are you worried about money? Here is a quick point of action. Um, where did that Bible go? Oh, I'm sorry. Talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to talk more about this next week. But here is some practical advice. Finally, brothers and sisters, verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Practical point number one. Start thinking God's thoughts, not the thoughts that you may have grown up with or who have been given to you by culture. Thoughts about who God is. You can say this in your own heart and mind. God is nice and he likes me. Would you like to say that to yourself? God is nice and he likes me. You can say it out loud if you like. God is nice and he likes me. God is nice and he likes me. Say it over and over and over again until it gets in your thick head because you have been told something different. And it's doing you no good. Thoughts about ourselves. I am a child of God. I am God's favorite. Everyone comes second to me. Say that in your mind over and over again until you get it. I am his favorite. He loves me more than anyone else in the whole universe. Ha ha, you guys. He is mine and mine alone. No, not true. Say that until it gets into your mind. Things about the world. The world is a beautiful place that has lots of things wrong with it that God is redeeming. I don't need to escape it. I need to work with him to make it beautiful. When these things actually infiltrate our mind, we see God, we see ourselves, and we see the world as they are supposed to be seen. And it means that it changes our whole perspective about things like money. It's mine. I get to do what I like with it. 
If I give it to God, I will surely die. I should be anxious about it, because if I'm not anxious about it, who else is going to be anxious about it? Jesus says it's better to give than receive. Jesus says, do not worry about what you'll eat or drink. Have these things filling your mind so that you actually are able to go through this life as it's supposed to be gone through. Do you know where anxiety all comes from? It comes from unreality. It comes from wrong thinking about the world. Start thinking rightly. And secondly, do stuff. It's not just about thinking, it's about action. Whatever you've learned, verse 9, or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. As I said last week, when Paul says, do what I do, he really means do what Jesus does. But I've followed Jesus so, so closely, you can pretty much do what I do. Put it into practice. If you want to free yourself from anxiety, actually, your action will inform your beliefs, and your beliefs will inform your actions. It goes both ways. The quickest way to start dealing with anxiety about money is to start treating it like Jesus wants us to treat it, completely freely. Do you hold it like this? No one can take it away from me. It's mine. Ha, 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 ha. Or do you open your hands saying, here I am, Jesus. It's all yours. Treat money like that, and you will see your anxiety dissipate. Give it away. Give it away. Give it away. It is better, says Jesus, to give than to receive. You will know if you believe that. because it will be what you're doing. The wonder of giving money away is that Jesus says, I'll look after you. I will come into all that anxiety and I will look after you. That'll do. What we're going to do is we're going to sing a song. And uh, during this song, what I'm going to do is ask you to pray. Uh, sorry, just before we sing this song, ask you to pray. And ask God to speak to you about your anxiety. Do you want to do this thing? Admit that you're a worrier. Admit that you have no power over your worry. Admit that actually if you let Jesus in, he can deal with the worry and then let him in. And particularly when it comes to money, and I will talk more about this next week, um, would you like to be generous? It will do you so much good. Uh, and we'll take a collection. If you're part of the church, it makes sense to give money to the church. You don't have to give all the money that you give away to the church, but it makes sense to give money to the church because money is part of who you are, right? It's part of who you are. It's why we find it so difficult to give ourselves away, including our money. But it makes no real, it's a bit of a cognitive dissonance to say, hey, I'm really part of this church if you don't give money to it. But you shouldn't give all your money to the church. It's just a way of saying, I believe in this thing. I'm here. I want God to use my money for his kingdom. It does not matter how much you give. It does not. Don't worry about what anyone else is giving. Just think about what God is asking you to give. Now, the Old Testament principle of the tithe doesn't really apply anymore, but it's quite a good guide. 
Uh, it's between sort of 10 and 25%. It's quite a good guide to go, okay, I can give that much. If you give $1, that's better than giving nothing. It's also exactly the same as giving a million dollars. If it comes from a place of generosity, just give generously. Just give as God prompts you. We are all people of the Spirit, and it's the Spirit who guides us. So don't be bound by any laws, any percentages. Don't give $25.345. Just give what God is saying to give. But I would give. It will help you. It will help you feel part of this. It will help you treat money uh, in a way that frees you from anxiety. If you're a guest or visitor, just ignore everything I just said. Good? Let's stand, and I'll pray.